please open in your Bibles to the back of your New Testaments, John's first letter, 1 John, and in just a moment I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 4, and Jim, I updated the, the text to begin at verse 13 to the end of that section we have been in a series, this is my concluding message in that series on corporate worship. And as we've given our attention to corporate worship, we've sought to highlight and draw attention and bring a fresh, if you will, reminder as well as affirmation uh, to you of some of the distinctives that the New Testament highlights when God's people gather together, Jesus calls his people to gather together. And through the letters and pages of the New Testament, we've seen there's certain things that when we gather together are true of us and true of God's activity among us and purposes that he wants to accomplish as well. And that's the last point I want to make today is when we gather, there is a particular purpose that is high, if not near the top, of the Spirit's agenda for our gathering. And it's simply this, that Christ's love for you, because of the gospel, would provide the fuel for your love for him on Monday and Tuesday. So in order to do that, we need to read God's word, his scripture, and ask the spirit for his help. So let's pray, and then I'll begin reading 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Lord, you know my frame, my physical frame, it is weak, and therefore I acknowledge it, not to draw attention to myself, but to invite your spirits supply in what I clearly lack. Lord, I pray too, more importantly, that you would grant your spirit to each person listening this morning, that we would have the spiritual energy and ability to hear what you are saying through the scripture, that we might leave here more aware of how dearly loved we are in Christ and how that changes everything and how we live for Christ. And finally, I pray here, Lord, for any who are leaning into Christ but still in their understanding or life look to their performance to earn or merit your favorable response. I pray there would be a fresh sighting of Christ in their life. And seeing him, they would be drawn unto eternal life and find rest for their weary soul. Be glorified today, Lord, in our listening and our response to your holy and gracious word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Chapter four of 1 John, this is God's word. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Psychologists tell us that you and I are capable of doing something that seems in retrospect incapable of being done. They tell us that you and I have the ability to, in the same moment, live out of two visions, if you will. What they say or call an intermediate vision, those things that are right in front of us that we literally see in that moment. So you see me, maybe you observe the beautiful spring plantings around me. You saw things as you drove to the building today. We live out of that intermediate vision, those, those things that we focus on with our eyes all the time, don't we? But simultaneously, we have the capability to live out of a distant vision, a vision that has very little, perhaps, to do with what's immediately in front of us, but is 
nonetheless important, real, and matters to us. I don't know if this has been your experience recently, but while driving recently to an early morning appointment, both hands were on the wheel, both eyes were looking ahead, I could see what was before me, but I wasn't thinking about anything that I saw. But my day was filled with the images and storylines of the movie we had watched the night before. And it was still affecting me. I drive the speed limit. I am the safest driver in my home. (laughs) But if you had put a screen behind my head as I was driving, you would have seen not speed limit signs and double yellow lines and two hands on the wheel. You would have seen the characters and heard the sounds of the movie the night before because it affected me. My emotions were still in that story even though the movie was eight. We have the ability to live out of two visions simultaneously. And so this morning's message is a reminder as well as an affirmation, but also an exhortation, if you will, that the Christian life is to be lived out of those two visions as well. The first is our ordinary, everyday lives with its responsibilities and assortments of activities, people, and places that we need to attend to. The second may seem a little more abstract or removed or distant, but nonetheless, according to the writers of Scripture, is fundamental to who you and I are And we need both the everyday, ordinary, and the more removed, distant, but nonetheless Christian reality to live our lives with vision. We just read a passage of scripture, probably a favorite passage, for some, where the Apostle John is writing to a group of churches in Ephesus. You've heard of that city before. Well, it would be a, a region or city in modern-day Turkey, although um, I don't know what is there compared to what was there in the ancient world. But John is writing this letter to them. Because it's been a difficult year for the Christians in Ephesus. He is the last standing apostle. He's the sole survivor. And the world is turning upside down. And they are being shaken. And he wants to remind them in these verses, as do each of the apostles in their letters, that when we are being shaken by the 
realities before us, that there is another vision that we need to call to mind and live out of that brings not only stability, but hope and bringing hope, fresh energy to live out the Christian life. Let me put it a little more pointedly. If the events of the last year have shaken your world and if your energy for Christ and his purposes has waned or dissipated and if living for his glory seems but a fond but distant memory, but now you're just you need, and I do too, this reminder. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be redeemed by Christ? The apostle John could have summarized that in many ways, but he used one way in particular to say it again and again and again and again. Beloved. Beloved. Did you notice that in your passage? The chapter begins with that greeting, beloved, verse 1. We didn't read that. But then in verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. And then he begins to tell us that God so loved us, verse 10, that he sent his son to be the propitiation, meaning the sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice that atones for your and my sins on the cross in order to satisfy the holy and just wrath of God the creator. Notice though, it's motivated by love. It's not, it's not fueled by anger. It's not, it's not a self-righteous frowning brow. It is drawn from this act of propitiation from the love of God in sending us his son. And then he says again, beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's as if John has become convinced that what the people of Ephesus need and the spirit through this inscripturated word has brought to our attention in preserving this passage for us that we need to be reminded and live out of this reality every day. You are loved by our Father. You are united to Christ and you are indwelt by the Spirit because of the gospel alone. Amen? And you had nothing to do with that. And neither did I. And you can't change that. Because God has determined to do this. Think about it. What's the number one identity people have lived out of in your world this year? Infected. Infected. Rand Paul got it. Tom Hanks got it. 
Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of... Prime, got it. The pre President of Harvard, I don't even know his name, got it. Prince Charles got it, and people were worried he gave it to the Queen, which I don't believe she got. Millions of people got it, and they were labeled what? Infected. And when you have a label, infected, it tends to crowd into your identity, consciousness, and you live out of some of that reality every day, which we don't need to articulate here. So it must have been thrilling for John in writing this chapter to say, I need your attention. Your world is shaking. You have an identity that was given to you by God. Beloved, beloved, you are loved by the Father, you are united to Christ, and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if you have been saved, those realities given to us so generously by the love of God enable us in the language of verse 9 to live through him. Not only live for him, that's important, but live through him. Live out of the identity of being God's dearly loved people. I think it was last week when I had the privilege to preach. The number one feedback I got, and when I get positive feedback, I take note of it. I need to hear the critique, and I get that, and I grow as I receive that. But the number one feedback I got after the service in an email was this. You told me God delights in me. That was like a throwaway line in the message. Why did that stand out to people? It stood out for the same reason it stands out to me in light of the things that fill my daily vision. To simply be told that because of Christ, he delights in me because I'm his beloved is good news. And the church is to be the fountain of good news. The gathered people of God are to receive, if you will, the reality of that good news. And having received it by God's grace and for his glory, live out of it for the betterment of others. Oh, how I want to live more of my life with you out of this identity of being united to Christ. And that's my first point this morning. And it's a simple one. And I'll explain my terms as we go forward. But it's this. The source of his love, we are united to Christ as God's dearly loved children. What difference does this new identity make in our corporate worship of Christ today? What difference does this new covenant, new testament, new reality make in our corporate worship of Christ today. My mom filled my dad's cereal bowl. I, for, I even omitted to say this. This whole point of the meditation, because she loved him. She didn't have to do that. 
wasn't like some ritual or rule or ridiculous role that's, you know, he, she loved my dad. So she loved to have that little bowl of boring cornflakes waiting there and go there and pour them out. And maybe he had some of those rituals too, just not when I saw, and I didn't observe a lot of things in high school, so. Why does God in Christ call you his beloved? Because he wants to fill your heart with a sense of his grace in the face of all too frequent our own acknowledgement. Oh, Lord, I have failed again in this. I have not done what I said I would do in this. I have fallen short in this, and that's all bad news. And I feel hopeless. Second point. The consequence of his love is we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And you may say, how's that any different than the first point? Well, because the second point is where you and I get to ask, are we rehearsing this and applying this and calling our soul to believe this every day? We are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And in order to do that, let's flip to one verse in Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I'm going to read it. And this is what Paul wrote to the Galatians, like John, to the Christians there in Ephesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I, speaking of Paul, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The consequence of his love is that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection as part of this new identity. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Paul uses that language a lot. There's over 164 mentions of in Christ or united with Christ or with Christ in the New Testament. It's, it's Paul's shorthand. It's his phrase, if you will, for what it means to be a Christian. What's he talking about? Well, in the verse prior to verse 20, verse 19, he wrote this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, speaking of the laws of Moses, the commandments, he's a Jewish man. Prior to his conversion, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was a scrupulous follower of many of the laws found in your Old Testament. And he lived out of that identity. He lived life from that position, if you will. It was how people came to respect him. His his PhD, if you will, dissertation was mentored by Gamaliel, a world-class scholar in his own right. It was his career. It put money in his bank account. 
He lived through the law. And he lost all those things when he was converted on the way to Damascus through a vision of the risen, ascended Christ. This is what the law had done for him. It was God's good and safe plan for him of of living for him. And if you will do just that, you will be raised with the righteous on the last day and you will be reputable and secure and have a position of status among my people. And Paul says through the law of God, meaning through keeping the law of God, I died. I died. When he became a follower of Jesus Christ and his heart was softened by the miracle of that vision on the Damascus road. And the seeds of truth that Christ not only was the promised Messiah, but his substitute and savior. And he now lived for him to know God through Christ. Paul died in believing that and receiving that to using his performance and his past accomplishments to earn God's love. He died to it. He had worked so hard to build his reputation. And now in Christ, that doesn't count. He had lived very securely because of his accomplishments. And now in Christ, that doesn't count. So what is going to go into the ledger when the things that he has held so tightly to and lived out of, what's going to provide the fuel and the faith and the the vision that leads to corporate worship? I am a child of God now. I am united to Christ I have faith in him and therefore my past and its achievements and my past and its failures, it died with him. It was crucified with him. It's dead. It's gone. And I have new life in Christ. How does that help? How does being crucified with Christ And raised, if you will, through faith in him, having our hearts softened, believing in him, being given gifts of faith and repentance and beginning to walk out of relationship. How does that help? It's the antidote and vaccine for your spiritual pride and despair. It's the antidote and the vaccine for my spiritual pride and despair too. Let me share an example. 
where I was both spiritually proud as a parent and it brings despair and I need an antidote. And it's found right here in these verses. And I have two of my adult children here and I have permission to share this illustration, but you're not who I'm thinking of, but we'll work it out over coffee and tennis later today. When my kids were younger and I was a Christian and I was, you've heard this, I was gonna raise them differently than I was raised because I'm a Christian. And I went to those seminars and I read the books and I made all my resolutions. You could hear me say to my children when they were young, you're a bad boy because you've done bad things. You're a bad girl because you've done bad things. Now, they did do bad things. No question. Sticking your hand in the socket with a screwdriver or whatever the equivalent was after my copious training, that's a bad thing, right? They could be killed and I'd be fired as a pastor. But you notice how I began? You're a bad boy. The motivation for their obedience in that moment is guilt, rooted in an identity of keeping the rules, of keeping your law, of keeping someone's law. Maybe it's the one you inherited from your parents, or maybe it's what you heard when I read Romans 12. You didn't hear, you're holy and acceptable to God. No, your accent's always, I need to make an acceptable sacrifice to God, and I can't because I'm unholy. And I'm unholy. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. That's not rooted in an identity of Christ having redeemed you. That's performance. That's works. That's not the antidote to spiritual despair. What I should have said, and Tim Shorey pointed this out to me at a retreat. I don't think he's intending to pick on me, but we must have been sharing an update about parenting. I was expressing spiritual despair and spiritual pride. I was proud of my parenting methods, as I'm sure I'm the only one in Christianity that thinks I did it all right. And I was despairing because I was remembering some of the things I didn't do right, and I, I was worried about the outcomes of that. Son, daughter, I love you. I'm committed to you. I have a relationship with you. Don't do this and obey me because I love you. Something like that. So your, listen, listen for the calculus. Your relationship with me is not at risk in your carrying out my directions. My love for you is not on the table in you complying with my instructions. I will love you if you do what I say, and I will love you if you don't do what I say. I may express it differently, but you're not a bad boy doing bad things. You are a dearly loved child, and I'm asking you, obey me because I love you. And so when those memories come back 
and both my pride and my despair begins to talk to me. I don't have voices in my head, but my conscience is real, and it's rehearsing the playlist of things I wish I hadn't said and done. I need 220 to say to me, even in that moment, even in that moment, when I was parenting beneath the privileges of the gospel and the kingdom and the grace, it re- God loves me. God now he forgives me. He loves me. I'm his beloved because my past, its performance, and my present, its present difficulties have been crucified with Christ. And here's the good news. I have been raised with him. Christ is raised because he was the only one in the history of humanity that was righteous. Only the righteous will be raised according to the Bible. He was raised first because he's righteous. And now in Christ, the Father looks at me and he sees this righteousness that somehow has been given to me. And he loves me too. Amen? Oh, we can do better than that. Amen? then we can stop performing. And we can find antidotes to our despair. And we can give our children and the children of this church a better legacy than spiritual pride and accomplishments. We can give them a new identity, pointing them to the wonderful Savior So what's the purpose of my life now? What's the good in life when I'm tempted to hang my head my head in shame? We sing it. Do you believe it? I pray together you help me to believe it more. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Oh, my soul. Isn't it great to be dead and crucified with Christ? I think too often, violating CDC guidelines... Where I live out of my identity is represented by this cup. My goals, my achievements, what other people say about me, parents, teachers, coaches, friends, pastors, whatever. In my case, fellow athletes. Oh, and I want them to say good things about me. I want them to praise me, and I'm pouring it all into that. And then something happens. This is where the illustration breaks down. Where the trial that I'm experiencing, the relational crisis that I'm brought face to face with and I can't escape, this cup is not big enough to hold what I need to live differently in light of this good news. So I got to get rid of this cup. I got to get rid of performing for whoever it is I'm performing for. I got to find a new ability to say, no, I've been raised with Christ. 
I am completely covered in his righteousness. He delights in me as his beloved. He indwells me with his spirit. Paul will later say, and the spirit within me cries out, Abba, Father, I am a child of God. And in that moment, you have a choice. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we? The cup, with all of its ambitions and dreams that we hold so tightly to, or Christ's new creation, the redeemed people of God. And that's my last point. The glory of his love is that we are a new creation. And we can live out of that in new ways and ordinary ways. We are new creations in ordinary life and can live that way. In a way that fuels, fuels our love for Christ this week through those ordinary means of listening to Christian music, encouraging one another through our fellowship together, now with Mass Off when we're outside, through hearing messages that build up our reservoir of grace, reading scripture that roots its promise in Christ's accomplishments and mercy. God says by his word in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 that we are new in Christ. A new creation. John will later say, greater is he that is in you that is in the world. Paul will say in Romans 6, you're no longer a slave to your past. Change is possible. Hope is real. Tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. With the authority of the word of God and the truths of the gospel, I can say, I am a new creation. We have been made able. We can have hope again. I can win the battle. famous sermon, I close with this, was given years ago. I believe it was in Great Britain. A pastor was trying to preach the power of Christ's sufficiency and grace to live out the Christian life. And he said, Thomas Chalmers, of his name, a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That what ultimately brings power in the Christian life is not merely a consequence of knowledge. He's referring to the knowledge of Scripture. It's a consequence of love. What drives the mother back into the burning building? It is love. What drives the human soul to say no to sin and keep the commandments. It is love. Second Corinthians 5, verse 14. The love of God does what? It constrains us against all of our self-preservation, self-centeredness, through the ministry of the Savior's indwelling grace. And what will be the effect of that love poured into our hearts? It will be keeping his commandments. 1 John 14, 15. 
If yours is a surpassing love for me, Chalmers concluded, speaking of our love for Christ, you will want to honor me. You will want to love me. You will want to walk with me. Why? Because of the love God has shown you. 30 years ago, I conclude with this. And I know it's not the oldest anniversary, but it's certainly significant. 30 years ago, Linda agreed to walk with me before she got on the train to drive to Philadelphia. She looked very different than she looks today. Her hair was like three stories high, the style then. And she's wearing those shoes that shouldn't be walked in when you're walking those, what are they called, pumps? And it would be cold, and I was wearing an army uniform because I taught at a military academy at the time. It was the only teaching position available, and I was a long-term sub. So we were quite the pair. Three stories of hair blowing in the wind. Who's the, who's the first lieutenant in the army? He, he doesn't, his brass doesn't shine very good. He's probably not in the army. We're still walking. We're still walking. Now, she's lost three stories of hair. And I no longer wear army uniforms. Who knows what, I, what goofy outfit I have on. What compels us to walk together? What compels two people who are very different and yet find ways to fit back in despite those differences? What compels two people when one talks over the other and the other maybe needs to hit me with a baseball bat more often, to zip it so she can fit in a word. What compels us to walk together? Rules. Rehearsing the past and how you did something or didn't do it well enough. Pride. What you inherited is your example from your parents. I don't know. No, only one thing. Love. Love. It has to be love. It has to be love. Not because Bauer or Linda are super loving, but because Christ has been pouring his love into your hearts and mine for longer than that. And when he does, the proof is, I move towards someone. And I humbly, where pointed out or by God's spirit convicted of, confess my weakness and sin. And we find ways to unite together. That's corporate worship. That's what we do as the body. It's the love of Christ poured out in our hearts that enables us to walk with Christ because we discover through the gospel that even if you haven't read your Bible this week and you're a Christian, or maybe you've read it every day, even if you haven't prayed the way you want to and you promised God you would, or you've prayed every day, even if you fill in the blank, Christ is still walking with you. And he says, take my hand and let's walk together. I have grace to give you undeserving, unwavering, pervasive. Not brownie points. Mm, no. He's pouring milk into a cereal bowl because he loves you.
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that each and every Sunday as we gather for corporate worship, called as we are by you, you have called us as we have heard in recent weeks from the scriptures to make visible the reality of the kingdom of Christ. You've given us, Lord, instructions to rehearse and remember the good news and to care for one another as the body of believers, to sing songs fueled by those gospel realities. But Lord, I pray that as we conclude this series, that the capstone would be that the reason we gather together is really not so much what we're going to do for you, although that may be the consequence and the byproduct. We gather together because you invite us to receive again by faith your precious reminder that we are your beloved children, loved in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, united through Christ with the Father. We are your beloved people. Fill us even now with a greater sense, not just an emotion. Emotions will fade before we finish our lunch, but with a perspective with a vision that deepens our grasp of how high, how deep, how wide is the love Christ has for us. That therefore, Lord, we can then live out of that grace towards others for your glory and the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.